From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A stark warning from the UN of growing losses in biological diversity. We are degrading nature and it's undermining human well-being. Our ability to supply food, clean water, energy. It's not just an environmental issue, it's also a development issue. But the good news is there's still time to turn things around. Also, adding beats to the soundtrack of nature to create love, joy, and conservation. I hear music in everything. I'm just a messenger for the intricately tuned voices of the natural world. The fact that nature is always singing is something that is really exciting to me, and I hope can create similar excitement and joy in others. Beast Box and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Folks at agencies from the EPA to NOAA to the eight regional climate information centers of the U.S. Geological Survey are now breathing sighs of relief as they will keep their federal funding or even see increases thanks to a bipartisan federal spending measure enacted March 23rd. A coalition of center-right Republicans and center-left Democrats voted to boost a cap on defense and domestic spending, making room for more funding for everything from fighter planes to renewable energy research. The vote also stripped most of the anti-environmental measures known as riders. Here to tell us more is Marianne Lavelle, Washington reporter for Inside Climate News. Marianne, welcome back to Living on Earth. Glad to be here, Steve. So there's a lot of good news here in this budget for people concerned about science, the environment, stuff like climate change. Let's talk about some of these. What about the geological surveys, climate centers? How did they do? Right. Well, the Trump administration had wanted to get rid of about half of them, and I think they're all staying. That's really important because the USGS has done some of the really important study on sea level rise and its impact on the coast. So that was important in a lot of states. Now, before all of this, the EPA was going to walk the plank almost to oblivion. What what happened finally? Right, right. They were looking at a 30% cut in their budget, and that would take them back to, oh, about the Reagan administration level of cutting. They already have lost 700 people through buyouts, and they were looking at losing 2,000 more. Well, Congress said no to that and kept them at their current budget. So they have fewer employees than they did at the beginning of the Trump administration, but it could have been a lot worse. Now talk to me about the Department of Energy and how they fared in this uh, in this financial arrangement. Yes, things like the Office of renewable energy and energy efficiency, that office was going to see a 70% cut under the Trump plan. And actually, it gets an increase, not just a small increase, a pretty large one, nearly a 13% increase. And this really is testimony to how important clean energy has become in red states. Texas now is number one wind energy state. Iowa, very big wind energy state. Kansas, 
even Oklahoma is looking forward to expanding uh, wind energy and bringing the tech industry there because the tech industry wants to have renewable energy. So all of these states, whether you're a red state or a blue state, new technologies and wind and solar energy has become an important business. In particular, look at the program called ARPA-E, Advanced Research Programs Energy. The Defense Department has a similar program, but it's it's to, to really seed early stage development in clean energy. And there are programs all over the country on this. And the Trump administration wanted to eliminate that program. They said the private sector should be doing this sort of research. Well, of course, the private sector does not invest in early state research. And Congress felt this was a really important thing to continue to invest in. They increased that budget 15%. And the thing to remember is that DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Programs, that's where the internet really was born. So the government has a pretty good track record of results for this early stage research. Now, what about NOAA? There's a fair amount of climate uh, research that's been done in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I guess they got a fair amount of an increase, huh? Right. Again, NOAA was looking at a $1 billion cut, and NOAA's budget also increased. NOAA, it's hard to overstate how important they are to these coastal communities and the research they do. For example, the sea grants that were going to be eliminated by the White House. Well, they're very important for the future of fisheries on the Atlantic coast, the Gulf Coast. They have even been doing research into how to predict heat waves and such in the ocean just as they predict weather so that fisheries can prepare for the changes that they're seeing on on a much more frequent basis now that we are facing climate change. And what Congress did with NOAA shows how important this is to their constituents whether Republican or Democrat. Now, there's a flip side to this spending bill. It, it took out all kinds of what are known as riders that a number of folks considered to be anti-environmental. Talk to me about some of those that didn't uh, make it in. Right. In the drafts of the budget, there were about 80 anti-environmental riders, as well as some riders that would have very radically changed campaign finance law, which also was very troubling to environmental advocates. Most of those riders were eliminated by the GOP leaders. They really needed to do that in order to get the Democratic votes that they needed to pass this budget. Talk to me about some of those uh, riders that got knocked out. There were many endangered species riders. One of them would have prevented regulation around the sage grouse, which is a big showy bird in the West. But the important thing about that bird is it's kind of a marker for the whole sagebrush ecosystem and about 100 other species. And the Obama administration had done kind of this middle of the road thing with the sage grouse. They came up with this, they called it a cooperative conservation plan. 
they felt that with the states involved, that they could work out a deal to protect the sagebrush and allow oil and gas development to continue. Well, the oil and gas industry very much did not want any of that regulation. And that is what the rider in Congress would have done. That rider was eliminated. But it's important to know that the Trump administration is going forward with trying to undo the deal that Obama cut on the sage grouse. That's happening with a lot of these riders. Talk to me about the methane rule rider, which I guess was ultimately rejected by Congress. This was a pretty big deal, right? It's a really big deal. Next to the Clean Power Plan, it's one of the biggest steps that the Obama administration took on climate change was several rules, really, to do with methane. And the Obama administration looked at this as an easy thing to do on climate, because all you're really doing is preventing leaks in the pipes and in the infrastructure. Just some new monitoring requirements, some better wrenches and pipes. Well, so one of the first things that the Trump administration set out to do was to get rid of methane regulations. They have tried to do that in many different ways. They've been knocked back by the courts. They were unable to get the votes in the Senate last May to do it. And this budget bill showed they were not able to get it through as a add-on to the budget as well. Now, the Secretary of Interior, Ryan Zinke, is continuing his effort to go through the whole rulemaking process to get rid of those methane regulations. So that's still, that is the thing about this victory on the riders for the environmentalists. Although they have won this battle, the war is not over because in almost every case, the Trump administration is going forward on a whole variety of fronts to undo these regulations. Now, um, Let's talk about one of the few anti-environmental provisions that did make it in this spending bill. I understand one of them encourages burning biomass, typically small, scraggly trees for electric generation. Now, what's wrong with that from an environmental perspective? Right. Well, there are two concerns that environmentalists have. One is the pollution, particularly particulate pollution from that burning of biomass, if it is not properly controlled. The other is that the advantages that this bill gives to biomass could make wind energy and solar energy disadvantaged in the market because it will be cheaper in some places to just burn biomass and it won't be as beneficial for the environment. It won't be as beneficial for climate because burning wood and biomass puts carbon into the atmosphere. So that is kind of the twofold environmental concern about that. But the argument was made, look, all right, so you burn the tree and it, the carbon goes into the atmosphere, but then more trees grow, so it comes back up. So it's a renewable resource. Unfortunately, the way that it is practiced is that we burn it much more quickly than we grow the trees to replace that biomass. So what's the mood in the environmental lobby now in, in Washington after this budget has passed? Eternal vigilance, it seems to be the mood 
in the environmental community. I would say there was a brief sigh of relief, (laughs) followed by more determination to keep up with what the Trump administration is doing, especially when it comes to climate change. Marianne Lavelle writes politics for Inside Climate News out of the Washington area. Marianne, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Time to check in with Peter Dykstra beyond the headlines now. Peter's an editor with DailyClimate.org and Environmental Health News, that's EHN.org. And he's on the line from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, it must be spring down there, Peter. Yeah, spring. It's a little chilly today, but it's a time of year when you begin to see the bees come out and pollinating blueberry bushes and things like that. But let's talk about bees for a minute. Around the world, bee populations are plummeting, and the cause for bees decline, well, one is um, parasites, another one is habitat loss, a third one are pesticides, particularly neonicotinoids. Now, there's a study out that says that enzymes uh, within some bees can prevent the damage from neonicotinoids, particularly a kind of chemical called thiaclaprid. Say that fast, neonicotinoid thiaclaprid. And that particular uh, chemical is going to potentially lead to new research that will tailor make other chemicals that will cause less harm to bees and less harm to the environment in general. So you're telling me the bees are giving these chemicals the beesness, huh? They're giving them the business, and it looks like something that may allow uh, some certain chemical pesticides and bee populations and pollinators to live together. Well, that will be great news. So what else do you have for us today? Well, let's go from bees to trees. We know the trees are our friends in terms of CO2. They bring in CO2, send out oxygen, but there's a source of CO2 sink out in the world that's much, much bigger that we rarely talk about. That's called the blue carbon areas, uh, like mangrove swamps, uh, coastal wetlands. They can consume as much as 40 times the CO2s and hold on to it as trees do. And the problem is that both trees and blue carbon areas are under assault. Yeah, and as I understand it, um, if the carbon goes into a tree, Peter, right, then it stays there as long as the tree's around, but then often the tree gets burned or something comes back in the atmosphere. But if it goes in these mangroves and tidal wetlands, it just keeps building and building and building. And, you know, after a period of time, it might be coal or something like that. It could turn into fossil fuels over um, hundreds of thousands, millions of years. Uh, But also if those uh, wetlands and mangrove swamps are destroyed, a huge amount of CO2 can go up, just like we now see CO2 rising from melting permafrost in the Arctic. Yeah, that's not great. Uh, Hey, Peter, what do you have from the History Vault for us this week? Let's stick with trees and go back 25 years to late March 1993. There was a huge uproar, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, between loggers and environmentalists. President Clinton and Vice President Gore called a forest summit 
They came up with a Northwest Forest Plan to help protect endangered animals like the northern spotted owl and also give the logging industry some opportunity to cut in old growth forests. They came up with this plan and everybody hated it. Yeah. In fact, I think people started suing each other and maybe they're even suing each other today still. Yeah, the loggers never reached their quota. The environmentalists thought that too much was being cut. And that kind of ill will has continued to this day, 25 years later. Hey, Peter, before you go, uh, something I need to bring up. Go ahead. Well, last week uh, when we were talking, I said that Norway has half of its cars uh, as electric. I actually should have said that half of the cars being sold today in Norway are uh, electric or hybrid electric. Thanks for the correction, but you'll never work in this town again, Kerwood. <laughs> Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks so much, Peter. Maybe we'll talk to you again real soon. Uh, maybe talk to you soon, Steve. And there's more on these stories at loe.org. In a minute, how cutting pollution from a coal plant can actually change DNA in babies. But first, this note on emerging science from Noble Ingram. For President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1933, the hard scrabble path out of the Great Depression had but one roadblock. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Today, scientists from McGill University and the University of Guelph in Canada have found that what was true 85 years ago may also be true today. The researchers discovered that indications of a lurking predator can cause some fruit flies to abandon behaviors critical to their survival. FDR had a point. Fear itself can be deadly. The team exposed small groups of these tiny insects to the scent of a hungry praying mantis. Alerted to nearby danger, the flies avoided activities like eating and reproducing, which would leave them vulnerable. After the initial puff of manted perfume, the risk of a total die-off increased sevenfold. As it turns out, the size of these isolated populations played a critical role. Fruit flies compete for resources and, in large numbers, suffer from excess competition. But the team found that smaller, otherwise unstressed populations actually suffered more from fear than larger groups. When all other environmental factors encourage these flies to eat and breed freely, the creeping sense of danger interfered. This curious biological phenomenon is known as the Ali effect, and it poses serious problems for struggling species, especially social animals like meerkats or starlings. As the saying goes, there's safety in numbers, and it's possible that for many prey animals, the fear that comes with losing your network is just as dangerous as the reality of a predator. Having no one to keep a lookout, even if nothing is really there, can spell disaster. So, in times of uncertainty, remember what FDR said, and keep your friends close, even if it's only for the peace of mind. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Noble Ingram. Pollution from coal plants has been linked to adverse health effects, including increased risk of cardiovascular problems and shortened lifespans, and a new study suggests a reason why. Telomeres are protective tips at the end of each string of DNA, and if they shrink, 
They make it harder for cells to reproduce properly. And it's known that shorter telomeres are linked to aging. Now researchers at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health have found that babies born near a coal plant in China had shorter telomeres than those born in the same place after the plant was shut down. Two of those researchers from the Mailman School, Professors Frederica Pereira and Diliang Tang, join us now from New York to discuss their findings. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. Thank you. So perhaps, Dr. Pereira, you could explain the function of telomeres, and uh, what are the health effects related to shorter-than-average telomere lengths? Well, telomeres are these repeated sequences of DNA that form a kind of cap on the ends of chromosomes, and they preserve the integrity of those chromosomes. And that's very important because it's been seen that, mostly in adults, that Shorter telomeres are associated with cardiovascular illness, premature aging, cognitive decline, and certain cancers. So you want to have longer telomeres. So longer life, longer telomeres. Yes, and that's why we use this particular biologic marker in this study in China, because we could use it to see whether this was an additional benefit of the closure of a polluting coal plant. So your study looked at blood from umbilical cords, uh, pregnancies that some occurred while the coal plant was operating, some occurred afterwards. What were the differences you found? There were many differences, actually. And we, over the years, have been able to show that there were many benefits. And this is just the latest one. The first thing we found was that the levels of this pollutant polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, coal plant emissions, PAH for short, latched on to DNA were much lower in the second cohort. That's a good sign, less exposure. We also found that levels of a protein involved in early brain development called BDNF were much higher, significantly so. And so here is the third sort of chapter in this story where we looked at this novel biomarker called telomere and asked the same question, is there a difference? Do we see longer telomeres after the plant was shut down, meaning those babies did not have prenatal exposure to these particular combustion byproducts? And where was the air pollution associated with shorter telomeres? And the answers to both of those questions were yes. Dr. Tong, so you found this difference. What does this difference mean for the outcome of the children? At age two, we did another neural assessment, the difference between two cohorts, it's not statistically significant, but it's showing there's uh, the same trend. After the power plant shut down, our air monitoring data is showing there's significant reduction in terms of the air concentration of the PAHs. The reduce of the air pollution will improve the children's health in different ways in terms of the physical development, also in the neural development too. A lot of those neural development issues, it's not reversible. Dr. Tang, is there any way to quantify the value of shutting down this coal plant in terms of what it does to enhance human health? We didn't quantify the the health costs. And in another similar study in China, we published two years earlier, we do qualify the reduction of the pollution, what is the economic impact on the municipality in terms of the health cost, which is very, very significant. You know, there is a perception saying that 
old reduce the environmental pollution may have a negative impact on the local economics. And actually, the, our evidence focused on the health costs alone, showing there is a tremendous improvement in terms of economic situation. I would add, may I add one, one thought, that in that analysis, we didn't really talk much about the, the benefits to children from reducing pollution, and that's something we're going to do more and more now. Based on results in this study and others, we think that we can document the full spectrum of benefits, including to children's health and their long-term health and functioning over their whole lifetimes, and monetize those along with the conventional adult diseases and costs avoided there. It sounds like what you're saying that move out the coal plants and you'll have a smarter population? It looks that way. Less fossil fuel burning, cleaner air, smarter babies, healthier babies, healthier children, and better life course health. So yes, I think there's good news. I should mention that this is the first study of telomeres in newborns. There had been studies in workers with exposure-specific chemicals, pesticides, and and a few, very few studies in children. But this is the first look at into that very early window in cord blood when babies are first born. Dr. Tang, how has the government in China responded to your research? We are very proud to be one of the very few environmental studies in China. The foreign environmental study teams operating in China are successful. And the, our study design a way to document the effectiveness of the government policy and bring the good news to the society. And also, at this moment, China, you know, facing the big challenge nationwide dealing with the environmental health issues, and they are citing our study cases as proof. And it's a hope to many other cities in China. As long as we commit it, the pollution can be reduced and the population health can be improved. Dr. Pereira, how is the United States government, I'm thinking particularly the EPA, uh, how have they responded to your research? Well, we haven't heard anything about this particular article. But in the past, the government, both at the federal level as well as state and local, levels have been very receptive to this information. And we've had a letter from Mayor Bloomberg in the past thanking us for our data that prompted more congestion relief in the city and other policies to reduce air pollution. We've testified before Congress and before legislators at the state level. So there's been great receptivity. And I would hope that there'll be more of that in the future so that science can actually inform and improve policymaking. Well, I want to thank you for this research. I mean, intuitively, you would think one would be healthier if you're not breathing air that's belched out of the smokestack of a coal-fired power plant, but uh, scientific evidence is important in these discussions. Absolutely, and no city in the world is free of these particular pollutants. Coal is obviously a big source in certain countries, but oil burning, even burning of natural gas, any kind of fossil fuel burning does release these pollutants along with fine particles and metals, a whole bunch of other toxic pollutants, and CO2, which is a main driver of climate change. So when you take all this evidence together, including the telomeres, the implication here is that children are going to experience reduced risk of disease, including and premature aging, 
it's a good news story. It's a bit different from what we've done up to now, which is usually to tell the, the bad news, to document these associations between pollution and adverse health effects in the children later on. So here we had a nice opportunity to show good news and benefits of an intervention that the government mounted. They shut this plant down. Dr. Frederica Pereira and Dr. Delian Tang are professors at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. Thank you for taking the time with me today. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much, Steve. Pleasure. A visit to a far-off country can offer the chance to experience the truly exotic and unfamiliar. And as Mary McCann tells us in today's Bird Note, that's certainly true of the land down under. The rainforests of northeastern Australia are isolated from all other rainforests on Earth. As a result, they harbor many species of birds found nowhere else. The eastern whipbird hangs out in the dense understory, It's dark, crested, 10 inches long, and more often heard than seen. Like its neighbor, the spotted catbird, that's nearly a foot long and emerald green with white spots. Easier to lay eyes on is the large, pigeon-like wampoo fruit dove, perching high in a tree, gulping down small fruits feathered in a stunning combination of green, purple, and yellow, this bird is clearly named for its voice. While pig-like grunting on the forest floor tells us we're in the company of the largest bird on the continent, the southern cassowary. On average, the female weighs 130 pounds and stands around five feet tall, looking like a giant, lush, black hairpiece on thick legs. A helmet called a cask makes it look as much like a dinosaur as any living bird. I'm Mary McCann. Burrow on down to our website, LOE.org, to see some photos and learn more. Coming up, how humans and animals can make music together. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The last male northern white rhino recently died, and with just two females left alive, the species is functionally extinct. But that loss is just a tiny part of rapidly declining biological diversity, according to a new report from the United Nations. It's the result of three years' study and four regional assessments that cover the whole globe and tries to explain why biodiversity is important, documents the main threats, and suggests paths to a more sustainable future. Sir Robert Watson is the chair of the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, which put the report together, and he joins me now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. So 
From all of your meetings and all these reports, what's the one thing that we need to know right now? The one thing the world needs to know is that we are degrading nature and it's undermining human well-being. Our ability to supply food, clean water, energy. And so as we continue to degrade our environment, it's not just an environmental issue, it's also a development issue. So how serious is the scale of biodiversity loss right now as you detailed in this latest report? Is significant. We're losing species at an unsustainable rate, more than a thousand times the natural rate of evolution. We are degrading our forests across the world, our coral reefs are degrading, our mangrove swamps. So we're losing species. We're losing not only certain species that may go extinct, but the populations of species are going down. So if you were in America and you walked through a forest today, it would have effectively 30% fewer butterflies, birds, animals, plants, and by 2050, it would be 40% less. So we really are changing our ecosystems quite substantially. Now, as I understand the report, it was really a study of studies. Tell me a bit about its scope. Yes, we've done actually five studies here, four regional, sub-regional, so the Americas and the sub-regions within the Americas, Asia and the Pacific, Africa and Europe and Central Asia. So we looked right across the issues from a regional, sub-regional, and we did a global assessment on land degradation. Now, of course, humans are but one species among the literally millions on this planet, but why is the loss of biodiversity so concerning to people at this point? If we lose biodiversity and we degrade our ecosystem, we're degrading our soils, we're polluting our waters. And therefore, as you do degrade soils, as you pollute the waters, it makes it harder to have food security, harder to have water security. As we degrade the land, you get effects in the ocean. Our rivers are polluted, our lakes are polluted, the coastal zones are polluted, which again affects freshwater fish, coastal fish, etc. So as we degrade our natural world, we actually have impacts on what many people really need, food, water. Now, so what are the driving forces of biodiversity loss these days? The big one today all over the world is land use change. We've converted our forests, our grasslands, our mangrove systems into agricultural fields, which we've needed, of course, for the food that we need. So land use change is the major change. And unfortunately, when we've converted our land into agricultural systems, many of those are unsustainable. We're producing more food, but we've got heavy use of chemicals, sometimes overuse of chemicals, in many parts. So that's leading to degrading our soils. Those chemicals leach into the rivers. That's affecting our freshwater systems, rivers and lakes. So land use change is the biggest, but also there's straight pollution of our ecosystems. There's invasive alien species and a threat that's already emerged but will only become even more important in time is climate change. And in fact, what we've said is Land use change is the biggest threat to date, but by 2050, in most ecosystems around the world, climate change will be an equally important threat. Therefore, we have to look at climate change and biodiversity together. They are both environmental, social, economic, and development issues. I want to ask you about one particular uh, area that your organization has looked at, and that's the loss of pollinators. What's going on there? 
Yes, we issued a report about a year ago on pollinators, and it's quite clear that wild pollinators are decreasing in many parts of the world. And what we're trying to look at is why might that be? Could it be possibly that we are using too many chemicals, especially things like pesticides, neonicotinoids, with managed honeybees, which is very important to complement the wild bees? Were the beehives healthy as we degraded our natural ecosystems? Were there sort of flowery areas and amongst the monocultures of agriculture? So we looked to see to what degree pollinators were being lost, to what degree did pollination services affect food production. And we talked about the various possibilities of how we might sort of halt the decline of pollinators and hopefully even reverse them. So pollination is crucial to indeed food production. And that was a report we issued about a year ago. What's the relationship between biodiversity loss and population growth, do you think? Well, there's no question. Two major factors. The more people we have on the earth and the richer they are, the more they can demand resources. There's more demand for food, more demand for water, more demand for energy. So indeed, it's the combination of numbers of people and the ability to purchase. So there's no question the threats on the the earth today are far more than, say, 50 years ago. And in 50 years' time, there'll even be more threats. So the challenge we have is How can we meet the food needs, the water needs, the energy needs in a way that doesn't destroy biodiversity and nature? And so talk about the relationship between our economy and the loss of biodiversity. Well, there's no question biodiversity is an extremely important part. What they showed in the Americas, for example, is the value of biodiversity and our ecosystems is roughly equal to the GDP of the Americas, something like $24 trillion a year. What we also said in the uh, land degradation report is the land degradation to date has probably depressed the global economy about 10%. That is to say, if we had not degraded our systems, the economy would 10% larger than it is today. And when you look at the effects on the economy, very many people immediately think of what I call the market value of food and water. But there's a huge economic value in the way we, the biodiversity, nature, regulates our climate, regulates pollution, regulates our pollination services, storm surges to protect the coast from sea level rise. So how do you think the trend of biodiversity loss is going to proceed as more and more of us live in cities? urbanization is another major issue. So inland use change, which has actually undermined nature, it's not just the conversion to agriculture. It is indeed our roads, our cities. Also, in the UK, for example, if you effectively look at the English landscape, it looks very nice. But that's because 40% of the food in the UK comes from other parts of the world, which are being degraded. So there's a little bit of a disconnect between people where they buy their food and where nature is being degraded. We need sustainable production of food, water and energy and sustainable consumption. That means the individual can also play a big role here. Don't waste food have a more appropriate balanced diet, Uh, don't waste water, don't waste energy, less pressure on nature. Well, so what should governments be doing? And and what about civil society? The public, once they realise that biodiversity is not simply 
an environmental issue, is a social, economic and development issue. They should be putting pressure on governments and on the private sector. We want a sustainable future. So government should put in place appropriate energy policies to stimulate a transition to a low-carbon economy, getting rid of fossil fuels and using renewable energy, putting policies in place so we're actually more effective in the way we use our energy, stimulate mass transportation so we don't all have to use an individual car. We do have mass transportation. Uh, also put in place policies that can help the farmer become more sustainable. So there's a lot of things... Government is in charge of largely stimulating policy, educating the public about these issues. Private sector, in the long term, needs to be sustainable. And most private sector either need nature to be profitable or they put a footprint on nature. So the private sector needs to take both the biodiversity issue and the climate change issue very seriously. Robert Watson, what gives you hope? Well, I suppose what gives me hope is the fact that over the last, you know, four, five, six years, governments have actually done three things that's very important. That in biodiversity, they have the so-called Aichi targets. They have 20 targets of how to protect biodiversity. We've got the Paris Agreement that was negotiated recently that says we should try and limit the change in the Earth's climate to no more than two degrees Celsius and hopefully 1.5. And then the world agreed on 17 sustainable development goals that go from energy security, water security, gender equality, leave nobody behind. So I think there's a recognition of the importance of environment and development. But the actions today are inadequate. Governments and the private sector have to be much more sustainable. The pledges under the Paris Agreement are not adequate to meet the two-degree target. They have to be doubled and redoubled. We need to do a much better job of managing our forests, a much better job of managing our agriculture. So there's a good realisation of what is needed, but we're falling short of implementation at the moment. But as our reports show, we can do much better with the current knowledge. We can use technologies better. We can develop policies. We can have behaviour change. So there's at least a recognition of the problem we now have to implement. Robert Watson is chair of the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. So Robert, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. And thank you for allowing me to talk with you. The howling call of a gibbon can travel up to two miles across the dense rainforests of Borneo. Many animals make some sort of sound to find a mate, warn of predators, or claim and defend their territory. And now their sounds are being used to create music. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom has our story. For many of us, the staccato notes of a katydid might conjure up memories of a warm summer night. But for Ben Mirren, a katydid's chirp is music. I hear music in everything. Ben calls himself a wildlife DJ. He travels the world as a National Geographic explorer to record animal sounds. And with help from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Ben created a website called Beastbox, where users can layer animal sounds over a beat to create their own compositions. I'm just a messenger for the intricately tuned voices of the natural world. And 
the fact that nature is always singing is something that is really exciting to me and I hope can create similar excitement and joy in others. To make a song, users open the website and then choose one of seven beat tracks that Mirren created himself. You can choose, say, Great Barrier Reef Beat. Or Sonoran Desert Beat. Then select an animal sound. There are 30 of them. You can add as many as five at a time to create a song. So let's say you choose a coyote. Then an Eastern Whippoorwill. A parrotfish. A Hadida ibis. And lastly, a blue wildebeest. Put them all together, and then your song is complete. On the website, there's a paragraph description of each animal and an explanation of their habitat. Each time a user chooses an animal musician, a graphic of that creature pops up on the screen and dances to the beat. For instance, there's an orangutan in a red leather jacket and matching sunglasses. And a tropical boo-boo wears a gold chain and a red cap. Mirren Hope's Beast Box will be fun for anyone, but the graphics and the genre of music are geared towards kids, like 12-year-old Orion Brown. Orion says he likes playing with the website. Um, I think it's pretty cool. It's a way to get a good education, but also have some fun. For an additional challenge, users can try to put all the animals from the same ecosystem together with a beat designed for that environment. It's called Beast Mode. Orion chooses the Madagascar rainforest. The first animal in that ecosystem is the Indri. Neither of us know what an Indri is, so Orion reads the description. Turns out they're lemurs. Um, a small group of Indris will wake up in the treetops and begin their morning shadows. Indri are large for lemurs, with booming voices amplified by enlarged throat pouches. What's next in the Madagascar rainforest? The next one is the lesser Vasa parrot. He finishes up with the Madagascar long-eared owl, the red-fronted quah, and the Sayumanga sunbird. Beast mode. So what do you think of the song that you made? Um, I think when you match them up with the with all the ecosystems together, it sounds better. Almost like it's sort of made for the beat. So you mean when you have all of the same ecosystem, like all of the, the desert or the, the rainforest or so together? Yeah. Do you think that maybe when they live together in the same forest and, you know, they're making music together comes kind of naturally? What do you think of that idea? Um, I think that would be a possibility, and if so, I think that would be super cool. Ben Mirren says Orion is onto something, thinking that the different animal voices complement each other. 
Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with with uh, his observation. Animal voices have evolved over millions of years to occupy different acoustic niches in an ecosystem, so they don't compete with one another. Making yourself heard is critical to surviving in nature. That's how whales find mates across the ocean, and coyotes defend their territory in the desert. Animals living in the same environment are already tuned to work well together, so everyone can be heard. And Mirren is excited about tapping into that existing symphony of sounds. As a producer, that means my instruments are already mixed. So instead of being a solo musician, I get to be a messenger for the finely tuned orchestras of the natural world. Mirren says what he wants is for Beast Box to help people learn about nature and create a connection with the natural world. At the end of the day, understanding and connecting with nature is critical to falling in love with it. And we can't save what we don't love. So I would hope that this opens a pathway for you to find your own sense of connection and love for nature so that you can be inspired to protect it because this is a collective future we all share. Ben Marin plans to continue sharing his recordings to foster that understanding and connection with nature. He recently returned from a trip to the Galapagos and is on his way to the Philippines next, then Honduras. So an ecosystem from those regions could become a future beast box symphony. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom. And there's much more about Ben Mirren and his Beast Box at our website, LOE.org. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Jamie Kaiser, Hannah Loss, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Ainsley O'Neill, Adlai Chen, and Yolanda Omari. And we bid good speed and goodbye to Noble Ingram. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade and Jake Rigo. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Carl and Judy Fehrenbach of Boston, Massachusetts, and from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888 888- That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.